Today's episode of Quarantine Creatives is brought to you by Soak Pools. Soak Pools are revolutionary space-saving pools that combine the best of a pool and a hot tub, install in just days, and provide year-round enjoyment. It's summer. It's June now. What are you doing this summer? You can't get away. You're not getting on an airplane. You're not going to that beach resort. Why not make your backyard feel more like a destination with a beautiful pool from Soak Pools? Soak Pools are made in New Hampshire, they install throughout New England, and they can even ship anywhere in the country to be installed by your local pool company. For more information, visit www.soakpools.com. That's Soakpools, S-O-A-K-E pools.com. Soakpools, small pools, big benefits. Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. So I wasn't sure if I should do a show today or what that show should look like. I'm new to all this and just feeling my way through this territory. For those of you who don't know, I have been a professional TV producer for the last 15 years. And part of your job as a TV producer is not just to hold your own opinion, but it's to really synthesize a consensus opinion. It's figuring out what of the person on camera's life experience can you bring into this? How do you tell a story that's authentic to them that might still reflect some of your own point of view, but you're also thinking about what audience is going to hear this? What's their take going to be? What are the sponsors of the show going to think? What's the network going to think? It's really your job to come up with a consensus opinion that that doesn't offend people, that doesn't wade into too much controversy. And in some ways, it's it's weird for me now to be on this side of the microphone, to have a show with my name on it, to have a show that I own, that I don't answer to other people on. And I feel like I have a responsibility just to to digest what's going on, to, to share my thoughts with you guys today. You know, this show is so new, I don't know yet exactly what the format's going to be. I don't know yet exactly why people are listening or what they're taking away from this. So, I don't know. Maybe people don't want to hear what I have to think, but I sort of just have to, I have to process it for myself, too, because, I don't know, man, these are, these are scary, scary times, and I've been up the last several nights in the middle of the night, just kind of nervously scrolling my Twitter feed and just seeing images from across the country of police cars on fire, of protesters getting, getting tear gassed, of violent, violent eruptions in so many cities across the country. And it, it just, it doesn't feel like the America that I, I expected to live in when I was a little kid thinking about what the world was going to look like when I was a grown up, you know, I grew up watching optimistic things, the Jetsons and things like that. And I just imagined we'd be in this amazing world where technology ruled and people got along. And, you know, I, I, I wasn't a consumer of kind of the, the dystopian future fiction out there. I was more on the optimistic side. And just looking at 
at what we've just gone through over the last weekend. I, I don't know. I don't know where we're headed. Obviously, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis was tragic. And it was just, it was made so much more so by the fact that it was shared with everybody. That we all saw this man dying in real time on social media. And in some ways, that's, I guess, the power of 2020 is that these things have been happening for many, many years. And now we have video cameras. In some ways, it harkens back to to the Rodney King beatings in the early 90s, except back then you had to trust that there was a citizen with a camera on his shoulder that happened to catch it. And now everybody has a mobile TV studio in their pocket. So in some ways, thank God for that, right? Thank God that we can all see these horrors. But at the same time, I don't know, I just, just watching somebody die like that. And that's not an isolated incident. We saw Ahmed Aubrey shot for jogging in Georgia. And we saw what happened in Central Park that could have ended tragically, that thank God it didn't. But those three events right in a row, and I think coming at the culmination of being locked down now for close to three months, that there's a restlessness in all of us, that we're sitting home, we're trying to to prevent this coronavirus from spreading. So many people are out of work right now. 40 million Americans are filing for unemployment, which means that there are that many more that aren't working but aren't eligible to file for unemployment. We're only talking about 40 million people that are eligible to file and have filed that paperwork. That number is probably a lot higher. And there are a lot of people that are underemployed, right? We're now over 100,000 deaths from coronavirus in just three months. Do you remember this? At the beginning of March, there were, what, a handful of deaths? A dozen, maybe? And now we're at the point where we're over 100,000, and that number is growing every single day. So you have people that don't have jobs, that are sitting at home. Because they don't have jobs, they don't have health care. So they're scared to death about catching this thing. Because what happens then? How do you afford it? How do you afford to go to the hospital and get treatment if you don't have a job and if you don't have health insurance? So we're all, we're locked up. We're scared of each other. As Eddie Sato said on the recent show, we're hiding all our smiles behind masks. The only humanity we can see when we pass each other on the street is in each other's eyes right now. We can't hug our neighbors. We can't even shake hands with them. We can't get within six feet of them. So you have this already dystopian existence. And we're all on our phones, on social media, a hell of a lot more than we've ever been, right? So we're, we're seeing these images, I think, faster and at a bigger number than we may have even a few, a few months ago. But the truth is, we're not all home, right? There's a whole group of the population that has been working, that hasn't had the choice to sit at home and scroll through social media or play video games or watch Netflix. Bus drivers, grocery store workers, delivery drivers, mail carriers, police, firefighters, nurses, doctors. And how many of those people 
are marginalized already? How many of them are people of color? How many of them are women? And we're expecting these people to put their lives in danger for the sake of all of us. That, to me, is, is the context of all of these riots. It's so much bigger than just one man being, being choked to death by the knee of a policeman on camera. It's so much bigger than that. It's about a system that is continuously failing its most marginalized citizens. And I don't know how to reckon that personally. I just, I don't know. But I feel like one of the important things that we can do in this time is uh, is to listen to each other, to talk about what we're feeling, to see the shared humanity in each other. And it's, I guess it's why I'm doing a show today. And this interview was recorded last week before before the world went to shit. And I, I think it's important to share it. I think it's important in some ways to have an escape, I guess, to not be looking at the news 24-7, to realize that we are all in this together. We are all human. And that we need to be there for each other. And in some ways, I'm lucky that this is the interview that was scheduled for today. It's with Vashi Nidamansky. Vashi is a film editor from Los Angeles. And I think he exemplifies for me so much of what I love about the entertainment industry. And that is that more than any other place I've ever worked or any other thing that I've been a part of, when you're on set with people, when you're in a a creative collaborative relationship, the only thing that you're looking at is that finish line is how do we get there together? How do we all contribute our piece to make this whole project as good as it can be? And what I've found in my years in television is that people are judged much more on their merits than they are on anything else. If you're a hard worker, if you show up and care about doing your best and care about making the end product as good as it can be, then you're respected and you're hired again. And it doesn't matter how old you are, what gender you are, what race, what religion, where you came from. You end up crossing paths with people that are very different from you. And I think, too, entertainment is, is such an engine for empathy, right? When you watch a film, when you watch a TV show, you're seeing the world from somebody else's perspective. And when it's your job to make that media, you're considering that empathy so much more than when you're consuming it. So that's what I love about filmmaking. And that's what I loved about talking to Vashi. And yeah, the world is is scary right now. And I don't know. I started doing this podcast because I didn't know what the other side of this was going to look like because of coronavirus. And now in some ways that feels like the smallest thing we have to deal with. It feels like a virus that might take a year or two, but ultimately it will pass. And I don't know 
how we resolve issues of racism, how we resolve issues of systemic inequality, how we resolve these structural issues that have been built in and institutionalized in this society. But I feel like part of what I've really enjoyed about doing this show is the ability to connect with other people, to share our thoughts, and just just remember that we're all in it together. We really are. And and God, I I hope we get to that that Jetsons world sooner than later. You know, the future can be bright, but we gotta all want it. We gotta all work towards that. It's the first time I've shared something like this, but I think it's important to start having these conversations. And if you have a platform of any kind, like I have with this show, like you might have with social media or YouTube or whatever, that you start using the platforms that you have to speak out against injustice and to advocate for good. So we'll see. Anyways, thank you for listening. Here's my interview with film editor Vashi Nedimansky. Thank you for uh, for making time. I'm excited to talk to you. No, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And I'm, I'm just as excited to discuss all this stuff. It's a crazy time and I'm keeping strange hours to say the least yeah. these days. Have you been working from home during this time or what's your what's your day been like? Yeah, I mean, I've over the last like five years, I've been working from home even more. So fortunately for me, a lot of, has not changed in terms of I've invested a lot in my my edit bay and all my equipment and stuff. So, um, so I'm available to anyone who wants to work with me. So for me, it's nothing has really changed that way. So I just have more time, but now I'm literally locked under the roof. Well, before we sort of dive into, you know, just all the, all the quarantine stuff and, and all that, I'm just fascinated by your backstory too. Uh, and there's a lot of it that really resonated with me just in terms of sort of growing up with, uh, with camcorders and, you know, uh, doing, doing basic editing, like deck to deck with, uh, with VCRs and stuff. Totally. Like, can you yep. just sort of, you know, tell me, I guess, sort of what, what first gave you that filmmaking bug? I was born in Czechoslovakia and then defected with my parents. I grew up in Toronto and Detroit and my father was an NHL hockey player. And, uh, the the reason my whole like filmmaking and film editing career started was my father was the first star in a hockey game in Detroit and he won a VHS like Panasonic uh, video recorder and tape awesome. deck and those you know in the middle eighties as you know like you know these things were like thirty pounds sure right? yeah like, one on one shoulder the deck on your other shoulder and he brought it home and he said well I don't know what to do with this son you do something with it so <laughs> I just started shooting started shooting like you know holidays and vacations and backyard stuff and anything that was going on I was filming and when I filmed everything on the deck we had another VHS at home already so I understood or I came to realize that if I hooked up one to the other I could literally choose which shot gets played when and I could record it to another VHS and then by definition discovered editing for myself right and at that point I just started making short films and started adding music to our our you know holiday videos and playing them for people and I think it's important that any creative realizes that once you get good feedback with what you're doing then you know you're just 
smitten by it and you want to do it more. Yeah. So I just started filming more and editing more and it became a part of me. And that's when I was, I was 12 years old at the time when I first started editing and discovering what it was to be a storyteller. Yeah. That, that first screening, like I'm just, I'm thinking back to my own experience. I was in sixth grade. So whatever that is probably about 12 yep. <laughs> as well. And same, uh, same. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I made videos, you know, as a little kid, like, you know, second, third grade, and I remember one of the big revelations for me was like, at first it was same like you just shooting, you know, holiday parties and, and just hanging out, you know, with the family. And then my dad taught us about just doing simple in-camera edits. Like you could make your friends disappear if you just, you know, hit record, yeah. clear them and then roll again. And it was like, whoa, you can, you can manipulate time like that. And then like <laughs> I, I made a video that I just one weekend and brought it into school uh, and, and my teacher played it for all my classmates and they were just like you made that and that rush of like oh people are seeing what totally. i'm doing and they're liking it that's so funny my situation was exactly the same i was in english cl english class yeah. and we were tasked with a book report and i asked the teacher and i was like 12 i'm like can i make a video instead of a, a written book report and the teacher was very progressive and said yeah sure and then we'll show it to the class right so on that on that day when i brought the vhs in they rolled in the old tv on the on the stand totally, with the yep. wheels put with the put strap the around class. the tv and all that yeah yep. make sure yep. it doesn't fall over <laughs> fired up the vhs and you know five minute short film yep. um on the on the book and everyone was laughing at the right time and chuckling and enjoying themselves and that's just intoxicating it is when you can get that result and get that kind of feedback from people and it's very reassuring and it just gives you that energy to want to do it some more yeah but so then you're you had sort of a, a circuitous path to it professionally because you you were a hockey player as well right you kind of followed in your dad's footsteps for a while yeah, I played professionally for 10 years. I, I was with the, with the uh, Los Angeles Kings and the New York Islanders organizations. Nice. Spent most of my time in the minors. So I was playing in cities like Biloxi, Mississippi, PD, South Carolina. But I also got to play in Phoenix and Las Vegas, Grand Rapids, Lowell, Mass. The life of a minor league hockey player entails a lot of traveling. Yeah. But, uh, but every summer I would go back to Los Angeles from you know from like the mid 90s so um i was always in la and i was always um in the summer times i would i was doing commercials i was booking national ads as anytime there's a hockey commercial then i would get go to the audition and I would, you know i booked about 12 or 14 national commercials back in the 90s and 2000s oh wow as an so actor was, as an actor yeah cool yeah. so it was great to be obviously on the other side of the camera and, right. and just see what a set is like and then meet a lot of people in LA and being a professional hockey player, there's a, there's a huge hockey community in LA. So I got to early meet, you know, like Jerry Bruckheimer and all these guys that had private skates and private hockey sessions, which I was invited to. So I got to meet like the cream of the crop That's awesome. when I was like 22 years old right. and just figuring my way out. And it was funny because on the ice, I was the best player and they're all looking up to me. And then once we get off the ice, I'm like, you guys are all the greatest producers and actors and right. creatives in Hollywood. I'm looking up to them. So it was a really nice give and take at an, at an early time. I'm curious if you've ever thought about just the that leap from, from playing professional sports to filmmaking and just sort of what lessons carry over between the two worlds. I think about it a lot. And one thing I've always realized looking back now after a while um, is that Filmmaking and sports are very, very congruous in terms of the essentials and the skill set and the 
the behavior of, of the individual in a team situation yeah. really crosses over well. Um, in, in hockey and, and in sports, you know, you have your role. In hockey, you could be um, a scorer or a passer or a tough guy or whatever. And the moment you step outside that role and say, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm a goal scorer, but now I'm going to start fighting. Right. Um, you're hurting the team. You're hurting everyone around you because that's not your job. That's not what you're best at. That's not what you bring to the table. And in filmmaking, you have to know your role and you have to stay within those lanes to, to have the best chance that the product and the film or the project is successful. And going with that, with the team of hockey and sports, is you have to be reliable, trustworthy, loyal. All these things that make a valued teammate transfer directly over into filmmaking if you want to be a valuable part of the team. And that's one thing I definitely noticed over the years. Yeah, that that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that piece of it, of just sort of the importance of each individual contribution and everybody mm-hmm. playing playing their role and playing their role really well, but not trying to do other people's jobs too. Right, right. And that comes from a place of you're trying, you're overextending because you want to contribute more sometimes, but you're, you could be hurting the, the bigger picture if you just, you know, spread yourself out too thin. So it's always something I think about. Yeah. And then, so you, you were acting and, and playing hockey. What led you to, to editing as a, as a career path? Luckily in post-production and in filmmaking, like, Editing is one of the only jobs that actually you always get paid. It may not be a lot, but you always get paid. If you think about it, you're shooting a short film or a project or a concept or something, you can get a DP that owns a camera to come shoot something for a day. You can cast four actors and say, listen, I need you for a day. We're going to do this. Here's the script. They'll do it. They want it on the reel. They want to just expand themselves. But when you take all that footage and all that stuff and, and dump it on an editor and say, Hey man, like we just want you, you can make your reel bigger and better. <laughs> the editor is going to be like, Oh, so you want me to take 20 hours of footage for this 30 second spot that you specked out. And you want me to spend, you know, three or four days cutting it, color correcting it, adding music, giving notes, making adjustments. No, you're going to have to pay the editor. So right. that was something that, that since I'd been editing for so long, like almost 20 years at that point, when I retired from hockey, I understood the value of, of editing and I understood that I can charge not a premium, but something that can help me get by and help me expand my skill set and get better because every project you take on, you're going to learn something, you're going to make mistakes. And the other thing is when you're starting out, what better time to make mistakes than when you're either getting paid very, very little or they don't expect a lot. Right. You know, I wanted to get those mistakes out of the way early. So when I'm on um, a proper film or, or a bigger project, I'm already done with that phase, hopefully, of making mistakes. I'm just fascinated by the whole editing process. Like, my background's in producing and directing. When you get a feature, let's say, and it's your first day sitting down with that footage, how do you even begin to to make sense of it all? Like, what's what's your method for (laughs) trying to figure out your path through? No, it's definitely, like, you know, controlling the chaos because um, on a feature film, you know, indie or, or big budget or studio, like on average, you'll probably, they'll probably shoot between like four to 10 hours of footage a day. Yeah. And when you're, when you're hired, you, you know, you, you speak to the director, you have that communication, you want to make sure you're on the right page. You want to make sure that's all taken care of before you start, because there's nothing worse than editing something for your, not boss, but your collaborators where you have a different vision than they do. Yeah. 
then that's ter- That's like the worst thing you can do as an editor. You have to be completely on the same page as the director and the producers, and you want to get in sync as fast as possible. So when you do start cutting, you're not wasting any time. So on that first day, when I get the first, you know, five hours of footage, first thing I do is organize it because this is day one of probably 30, 40, 50 days of shooting. Right. I'm going to get five to 10 hours every day. If you don't have your system and your organizational stuff set up, then you're, you're already screwed before you even start. Cause the last thing that you can have happen is if the director comes in and they say, can, let me see this day or let me see this shot. And if you spend five minutes looking for that shot, you're, you're screwed. Like you literally won't get, won't get another job. So right. organizing everything is, is critical on the start and then becoming familiar with the footage, like owning the footage so that it's inside and out. You editors are usually not on set for when, when they're filming. So, I like to organize and then become so familiar with my footage that I know where everything is. I know what the best takes are. I make my own notes and markers on everything. And and that's how you approach it because you can't think like, Oh, I'm going to have 400 hours of footage soon. You have to just take it chunk, chunk by chunk, just day by day. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And are you, are you literally watching every take and and trying to note performance and stuff in every single one? Yeah. That's what I, prescribe um i try and watch everything twice if possible oh, wow. first time just to let it wash over me yeah and then the second time to make notes because um i think editors have a certain skill set where i can ingest hundreds of hours of footage and it doesn't bother me it doesn't overwhelm me and i remember everything so i'm lucky that way so when i become familiar with the footage I just get more comfortable. And then when the director says, Oh, on this one day we did this and that. And I'm like, Oh yeah, here, I, I remember what they're talking about. So I have to watch all the footage. I think an editor is doing the project a disservice if, if they don't watch all the footage. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that the directors always do circle takes where the script supervisor will circle a take that the director wants. It's usually one of the last takes in a series. If you do one shot, you'll do it eight times, usually seven or eight is the best take. And it's circled. That doesn't necessarily mean that in the film itself, that's the best take for that moment because of the subtle varieties of, of, of how the actors are performing, how the tone is set. It's, you know, both macro and micro, like that right. one tiny moment of one shot is critical. And, you know, as a producer, like you can watch something, if there's one bad shot, you're completely taken out of the piece. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, what was that? What was that? What just happened? We got we to gotta, we gotta fix that. We got to swap that out. So my job is to basically obviously know all the footage and then cut it together in a way that's pleasing, that's concise, that, that's elegant, that makes sense, that flows, that has a rhythm, that has pacing. All of that has to happen on every cut and in one feature film. In an average feature film, there's 1,300 individual shots that wow. are connected, cut, yeah. cut together. So that's 1,300 decisions for the final version, but oftentimes a feature film will be twice as long. The last feature film I cut, the first, uh, my first edit was three hours long, and then the final release was an hour and a half. Yeah. So I threw away literally 50% of what I had cut because the story dictated that it needs to be tighter, shorter, you know, to get it to boil it down to that functioning creature that works yeah and i feel like that's such a tough thing for a lot of people until you have experience sort of throwing those shots away and realizing it gets better like i learned that in writing first actually that just like you know even just a school paper or something like 
you know, you burp out three or four pages and then you say, it's, it's really a page and a half. And then, you know, yeah. in, in, in editing, uh, same thing, uh, you know, a 12 minute sequence is really better as an eight minute sequence. To your point, just a three hour film that goes down to an hour and a half. I think people that aren't in the industry say, how is that even possible? But like, right. It, it almost always gets better when it gets shorter, I think. Right. Uh, I, I agree. Like one of my tenants is like shorter is better than longer. Um, there's so many quotes from, from famous filmmakers like Billy Wilder, where they say the greatest sin is to be boring. Right. Right. In a, in a film, like, um, there's a time and place for everything. Um, but yeah, quicker, faster, uh, just more elegant and concise. I like elegant and concise as opposed to faster in terms of give the information and then move on. Yeah. But the other thing is in the edit bay after, after a while, when you're deep, deep in the cave, um, the story will tell you what it needs. Yeah. Like you watch it so much, you become familiar with everything, but it will tell you what it needs. You'll watch it. You're like, oh, this is really like the scene is slower. Like this is just dead. Right. Cause you're comparing it to the scene before and the scene after again, that macro micro, like looking at one scene compared to the entire film. And an editor has to be able to look at the whole film and realize what's happening in one tiny moment and how it affects both upstream and downstream what's happening. And that's the gift of, you know, a really talented editor that can have that vision to focus on the little and the big at the same time. Yeah. And and you talk about rhythm being so important and just sort of one thing flowing into the next. Like I learned this almost by accident, like maybe a year or two ago that, you know, the show I was on, we would go through essentially four revision cycles. You know, there would be a rough cut and a fine cut of, of each segment individually within the show. And then you put it together as an episode and a rough cut, fine cut. And by the time it got to the fine cut stage of an episode, like I had seen that footage. So I had lived it on set and I'd watched it in post so much that like it was easy to get sort of trapped in it or to fill in blanks in your head. And so once I sort of knew that, that the content was there and the story was what I wanted to tell, I would watch it at like one and a half or two times speed. And it just it it threw me enough off. That like I wasn't really paying attention to the words at that point, but more just the rhythm of sort of like winter winter yeah. cuts happening. You hear the music coming in, and is it overpowering the dialogue? Just sort of there's a lot of subtleties. I would even notice like you know on a two camera shoot, the second camera would drift into frame sometimes. That again, I'd seen the thing forty times and would never have noticed it, but all of a sudden when you're watching it quickly, your attention goes elsewhere. And, you know, there's something in the frame that jumps out. You say, what was, Oh, that was the lens hood. You know what? We got to, we got to crop that shot. You know, just like it it is interesting that just the rhythm that, that these things can take on and how important that, you know, it it becomes like a, like an orchestral piece, right? It it totally is. And it's a living, breathing thing, right? It's like you've crafted it from the pieces and parts. And then when you look at it as a whole, it's, it stands alone and you have to, you know, embrace it and see what's happening. And there's, you know, there's some ugliness to it and, and that's refinable. So you can always fix it, but it is a dance. And, and like you said, that rhythm, like I'll, I'll often watch stuff, um, you know, two times speed. And yeah. I use a, you know, Adobe Premiere Pro and they have a function. I think all editing devices have where you can, it'll change the pitch on the fly. Mm. So I'll listen to it at two times speed, but it's playing in the regular tone in yeah. terms of it's not Doesn't raised, sound raised up, an right. octave. Yeah. Right. Right. So, which is cool. I want to just plow through and make sure everything is in there. But at the end of the day, um, I know a lot of editors that watch the dailies, the the raw footage at two times speed so they can just like become familiar with it. But I don't see the point in that because I need to see, I mean, you know that like there's as much acting in the pauses 
and in the breaks yeah. in between the words as there are uh, delivering dialogue. So I have to watch it, you know, real time so I can actually see what was captured and make my own notes and make my own comments and, and categorize certain takes as, oh, this would be great if this happens, I can use that. You've been all over, you know, you've done documentaries and, and narrative and all, oh, but yeah. like you, you were on, on in the post team for Deadpool and like an action movie like that where things are so heavily storyboarded and there's so much visual effects, you know, there, there's so much that goes into it. I'm just curious, like where the room for creativity comes there's there's always room for creativity because everyone wants the, the piece to be better and better and, and there's a lot of feedback and luckily filmmaking is a collaborative art and yep. um you know and the director coming in like for example like on deadpool i worked on deadpool for nine months i was brought in to um set up the post-production workflow to train the editors they were all using adobe premiere pro for the first time wow um so i was brought in to um teach everyone, set up the workflow. Tim Miller, the director, was really good friends with David Fincher and they had talked about it. And Tim Miller was like, you know, why, why do you use Premiere Pro? Again, just editing software, but um, he gave him the reasons. There's a lot of VFX and the benefits. So I'd worked on uh, Gone Girl and a couple other projects uh, with Fincher's team previously. So I had good experience with that and then transitioned to Tim Miller um, for Deadpool. But, you know, on that film, for example, we had 550 hours of raw footage wow which is uh quite a bit i did the math like if the editor were to watch all the footage at real time just once just to see it it would take 18 weeks at 40 hours a week just to see all the footage once um but that's what to be honest like you know that's what editors need to do if if possible right because now we're usually cutting as they're shooting they're shooting we're cutting you know, we can have to, we have to ingest and, and become familiar with, you know, 10 to 20 hours of footage. And Tim Miller was shooting two cameras, sometimes three cameras. There's obviously in action films you want to, sometimes we'll cover actions with several cameras. So you have options in post, but the collaborative aspect of Deadpool, which is amazing was Tim Miller would ask literally anyone, come in here, come in the edit page, which take do you like better? Yeah. Or how does this look? And when you have an open atmosphere like that, where people are, asking to contribute when the director, the person that everyone is trying to not only please, but to perform at the highest level so we can achieve their vision. It's really a great place to be when you're looking at a 75 inch, like 4k monitor going, Oh, you know, I don't like that take Tim. Let's try something else. You know, I think we could do better. Like, you know, it's an open atmosphere and that's not every situation, obviously, but I think the smarter and more successful filmmakers are open and more collaborative because at the end of the day, the director is the one that's going to get credit if it's good or, you know, jump on a grenade if it's shitty. So, <laughs> right. you know, it's that thing about so like hire, yeah, hire people that are, that are smarter than you and more talented than you. Right. Totally. Because they make you look yeah. better. And then, and then take the credit for it. Why right. not? Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious too, on that, you know, just talking about directors, like when you collaborate with a director, again, for me, it was, we were, we were shooting all the time. And so post was usually happening back in our office and I would be there a handful of days a week and could pop in, you know, for maybe a half hour here and there. But I wasn't sitting right with our editors most of the time. And I was reviewing cuts online and, th- you know, like it, I, I didn't have a lot of time to sit one on one with them. But when you're when you're talking about like a narrative film, the director's in the room with you a lot, right? I've I've seen and been part of 
all kinds of different styles of directors. And that, that relationship with the director is definitely sacred between the editor and the director. We're, we'll sit together in, in that dark room for, you know, 10, 12, 14 hours a day. You're part psychiatrist, part storyteller, part punching bag, part yeah. everything, right? Because you're, you're seeing the inner guts of the director. They're taking personal calls. They're completely open. They're transparent right. at that point. Yeah. And, and that's part of it because post-production can, can be nine months, 10 months. And, you know, for example, with uh, I cut a film for David Zucker, who obviously directed Airplane yeah, and, yeah. and so much more. And he would be in there at nine o'clock in the morning and he would leave at six and we would just watch stuff together. We would make cuts and we would cut all day long, nonstop. And and a film is cut when we do editing because of the just keeping everything in order. We'll, we'll make reels. We'll make a 20 minute reel. So a, a feature film will be, let's say, five reels long, each one 20 minutes. And he would say, all right, put on reel one. And we'd start editing once we had a cut. And he would just find those little moments and try and exude humor from them or tighten it up or make sure everything is working. And we would just keep going reel one, reel two, reel three, reel four. When we get to reel five, he says, put up reel one again. So it was literally nonstop. Just like until yeah. they take the picture away or until the budget <laughs> is gone. Yeah. He was just grinding through the footage. And I learned so much because comedy is one of the, obviously the hardest things to you can't cheat it. You can't right. like make something funny per se, you know, and it has to be in the writing, the performances, the reactions, the timing, everything is all built into having a successful comedy, even just one joke. Yeah. So I learned a lot from him, but he was a grind master. He would go all day long and, and nonstop and other editors, sorry, other directors I've worked with. They're like, well, show me a, you know, a scene or a chunk when you're ready. And they wouldn't even come in. Yeah, and we just have communications, and I would show a cut later, and then they would have notes, and we'd address it. But it's uh, an editor is best when they are flexible and open to all approaches, and can can handle those things, you know, and that makes them a more valuable person. So, just sort of thinking about the moment we're in right now, and you know, coronavirus just sort of shutting things down. What's your perspective on sort of how we start crawling back? I guess post production is always <clears throat> at the ready in terms of there's always something that can be done. And obviously if there's less footage or no footage, then that makes it harder. But uh, I just think that there's going to be a, a shift in terms of um, we're talking, you know, mobile editing or, or remote editing. Um, the biggest reason there hasn't been mobile editing as much is security with the studios mm. in terms of they're absolutely terrified that something's going to leak. Or if an editor has the entire film at their house, that they're going to post it online somewhere and in 20 years of this industry, I've, I've never once heard or seen of an editor that leaks footage from his own film for, for not even for profit, just like to, to either brag or to show yeah. something cool. Like there's, and it's not even a code. It's just like, it's just, you, you would never do that to hurt the project that you're working on. Or right? for yourself. Really you're never going to work again if you're that guy, right? You'll <laughs> never work again. And this town, Hollywood is so small. If you hear one little tidbit oh yeah he's the editor that, that leaked that stuff you're done right Forget about it right who who do that so that was the biggest concern security but as soon as the lockdown and, and covid happened everyone is being sent home with drives and they're saying just finish it we don't care just finish it yeah. finish the work if you do it at home if you do it somewhere else we don't care because again money's online these these productions are on the line and they have to be finished and i think there's going to be a complete change in terms of having mobile editing where people can be anywhere 
they've already been doing it with, with VFX. Everything yeah. is farmed out. These, these shots and these hard drives are sent with all the raw footage to India, to Vancouver, to wherever. Um, and the and the stuff sent back. So it's not a question of mobily or, or locally doing it. It's a question of security. And now there's so many other online solutions for editors to be able to remote edit and use the cloud. Or I prefer still always have is the, the mirrored drive, the cloned drive, where at the studio they have, let's say, 100 terabytes of all the raw footage. Yeah. And then the editor will get a, an absolutely the same cloned drive, another 100 terabyte RAID, and they cut off that. And as long as the names and folders are exactly in the same place, all you have to do is email the project file, which is, let's say, two megabytes. Yeah. You literally just email and go, here's my new cut or here's the new film. And they open it up on their end and everything just relinks automatically because the computer sees the same naming convention for the hard drives. Right. Yeah. Drives and name the you're, same. You're the folders are all the same. Yeah. Just exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Again, organization to keep clarity. And the thing is a hundred terabyte raid, which was you know, redundant to protect yourself. If a, if a drive goes out, you can swap it out. I mean, that's literally at $3,000 yeah. or $3,500. So for $3,500, you can set up an editor or a VFX artist in their house and say, here's all the footage you have your own computer um, taken care of, you have the software, just do the work. And that's going to be happening so much more that people are realizing. Um, when I lived in Santa Monica, I lived there for 20 years. I would drive to Burbank or to Glendale, go to the studios, and it would take you know an hour and a half to get there in the morning. Yeah, I would cut for eight or nine hours and drive home. And that's just that's literally self-induced torture. Right. Looking back at it. Yeah. And I don't want to do that. I, I don't think anyone wants to do that. They want to have more options, more time, and, but still be productive. And if it's a question of trust, then that has to be earned by, by anyone to, to be put in that position to get that hard drive or whatever. But you choose the right people, you provide them with the right tools and give them a clear schedule, then you're going to have, I think, better results. Yeah. That's, that's interesting, though, too, your, your point just about what, what happened in the VFX industry and, and the outsourcing of that. Like, I wonder if we're going to see that with with editing or, or other parts of production too that you know it's it's not just a factor of you know being in santa monica it could be somebody in you know india or china or wherever that yeah. you know that's worrisome for me just thinking about that no 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 i agree i think i think with like the vfx and let's say music or something else that can be completely farmed out but with editorial there still has to be that that connection and that communication that has to be constant and you have to be available like 24 seven, yeah. you know, the director has a question, they call you and they need an answer right away. And it has to be a, not a, a, it has to be a human face or a human voice, right? It has to be something you can get a hold of instantaneously because the concerns of the director, if they're not in the room are, Oh, I just thought of something. You, uh, uh, you got to do this or write this down. So right. it's, 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 it has to be instantaneous. So it can be mobile or, or remote, but it has to. The communication factor has to be completely wide open, transparent, and 100% available. Which yeah. is, um, which is why editors probably only do like one film a year or two films a year because that is extremely taxing. And I got to tell you, as a former hockey player, like the aggression and, and the aggressiveness that I have can't enter the the edit bay. Right. Like I have to literally flip a switch because. I could be a nutbag and my wife will say, you're a fucking nutbag. Yeah. You need to go exercise or something because you're completely, you know, all tense and stuff. And without that, that release of exercise or, or whatever it is that, that every person needs, I have to bite my tongue sometimes in the edit bay. And that's not the easiest thing. But again, if I want to have a job, if I want to work with other people again in the future, 
I have to be very nice. Yeah. <laughs> Relationships are key in this business, right? Oh my God. I've gotten almost every editing job. I've edited 11 feature films and almost all of them, I think 10, 10 or 11 of them were all either recommendations by friends. It's always been, Oh, get Vashi or talk to Vashi, but yeah. it always starts with a phone call, right? Every job starts with a phone call with the director or producer and you, you got to want to make sure that the, the person that you're talking to is not a lunatic in, in a bad sense. Like, you know, you can be a lunatic creatively, but right. as long as they can <laughs> hand, handle themselves and interact and not, not shit themselves, you know, then, Hey, he's a good guy. I like that guy. Yeah. And you're going to be spending six, nine months with this person. And as exactly. you say, in a very intense relationship, you know, all day, every it's day. It's very intense. Yeah. And there's no, there's good and bad days, but like every inch forward is, is what helps helps get to the finish line you know totally but it's a it's a huge challenge and that's that's the other thing like as an editor small incremental gains mean a lot when they build up over weeks right it's you think that i did the math because i was always thinking about it i i said how much do i actually edit in one day like i'm working on a feature film did do you cut 10 minutes of footage a day like functionally like that works or whatever yeah and then i kept the log in a diary i found out that on average I would create about three minutes of footage every day. Now that's including music, yeah. sound effects, uh, color correction if it needs it, and also removing all the clicks and pops and all the little stuff that, that if you watch a clip and you're not a, a filmmaker, you're like, well, I can't, there's no bus. I saw the bus drive by, but there's no bus sound. Right. This, this scene sucks, yeah. right? Oftentimes directors and producers cannot fill in the blanks that an editor or someone who owns owns the material that knows exactly what they want, they, they fill in the blanks as they're going. But I have to create that even at the earliest stage because most people want to see it in, the, as, in as close to the final form as possible. And that takes a little more work and it takes a lot, a lot more training and a lot more experience to do it. But if you give a director or producer something that's really, really working and smooth, then not only are you making them comfortable? But they're like, oh, this is great. I love this person. Yeah. I want to work with this person all the time. Yeah. And I was just thinking too, just about sort of the importance of that, that, you know, for me, again, as, as a producer director and often being distracted when I'm watching an edit, you know, I might be watching it on a plane or in a hotel room or something. You don't always have time to identify what's not working, but if there is something yeah. that just, it throws you off a little bit, you know, it, it cuts just a little too long or there's a camera reset that they forgot to cut out or what, like I, I've, I've watched cuts and just said, what was I thinking that day? Like, was <laughs> I like, I didn't shoot sure. coverage for this or what? Like I'm the worst director in the world. I've never, <laughs> I can't believe I did that. And then there are times where you see something back and it's just, you say, wow, that was way better than I ever thought it was going to be. But like on the, on the, on the, uh, the shitty ones, like when you watch them back, and they've been corrected then, you go, oh, no, we got the coverage. It's just, you know, there was something. And, and it, as you said, it might be a minor thing, just a sound effect that's missing or, you know, something small like that. But it can it can yeah. throw off your whole perception of, of, this, of the piece. Yeah. I mean, our bar, our bar today as consumers and, and movie fans and just people that, that watch things is so high in terms of the level of quality on, on everything from a commercial to a TV show to a you know, anything. It's, it's astounding. It's really it's spectacular Yeah. to the point that sometimes the story's not there, but technically it looks amazing. It sounds amazing. Everything is there, but sometimes the story is the only thing missing. Yeah. The actual delivering the, the visuals, and the audio, I, I've never seen something so amazing as what we have right now yeah. and what's available to us all. It's, it's funny that story point, just thinking about there've been movies that I've seen in a movie theater 
And I'm just like, wow, that was really good. You walk out at the end and you, you feel really good about it. And then like six months later, it's on home video and you're like, oh yeah, let me check that out again. And you watch it on your TV and you're like, this isn't as good as I remember. <laughs> like There is something yeah. about just the spectacle of what we have available to us now that, as you say, sometimes that can overwhelm a bad story <laughs> that just yeah. seeing something projected no, up you know, five stories, you're like, oh yeah, this is good. Oh, I mean, when you're in a theater, not only is it a collaborative room <clears throat> where everyone is partaking and, and there's, you can be in this darkness, you're, you're so focused on the screen. Like that's obviously the purpose of cinema to, yeah. to, to present it in the most beautiful way possible. Um, I do find that like at home, if I'm watching something, it's, it's almost sometimes in the background, I'm more just listening to the dialogue. I'm like, just tell me the story points. Right. Just, let me just hear it. And when I'm working or if I'm just doing other stuff, I'll always have movies on in the background. I'll always have like all the president's men or Zodiac or something playing in the background on like a huge like, TV. Yeah. It's like comforting, comforting for me. Right. right. Not only is it like osmosis, like if I have that playing good vibes will happen because I'm watching this perfectly crafted film, but also it's, it's, it's just like background noise to block out everything else and, and put me in a zone. I know a lot of other editors do that too. I mean, when we were with David Zucker, when we were on the soundstage, we were mixing his film and they, he's a hockey fan as well. We had a huge TV with the playoffs that we were watching in the sound studio. Oh, cool. So it was hilarious. Well, and you're uh, part of sort of how I got connected to you was through Twitter and sort of your, your social media presence. You are just, the biggest film nerd <laughs> like it's awesome sort Absolutely. of the, the content that you share and one of the things that i think is is very cool are, are just these these visualizations that you do of every single shot in a film laid out on a giant graphic yeah what, what i guess why do you do that is that more for you or <laughs> like uh, you know i find it very interesting just to sort of see you know the the types of shots that that are being chosen. You know, is it a lot of wide shots? Is it a lot of close ups? And and sort of tonally, you can get a sense of of color and different things. But like, what led you to start creating those? And what's the purpose of them? I guess I I make I, I just call them Vashi frames. Yeah, literally every shot every shot from a film. And like I said earlier, an average film will have thirteen hundred shots. And there's exceptions both ways. For example, uh, Chinatown has only 492 shots. Wow. Lord of the Rings, the, the first Lord of the Rings had like 3,500 shots. So like triple the average. But the reason I do it, and it's because, yeah, because I'm a maniac and a, and a film nerd and everything, but I like to try and reverse engineer things that are that I can have access to. Mm. And I think with a feature film, you can break it down. Let's just take Chinatown. If I break it down, um, I use software to, to see the different edits, and then I manually make sure every shot is the best shot. And what I do is each little image of the shot, um, I have to pick that frame because oftentimes a shot will start where someone, the doors close or open, mm. will walk into a close-up and tell a line and, and say their line. So I have to pick the, the right frame for every individual shot because if you just have a closed door, you're like, What's, what the yeah, hell is that? I don't, right. I don't know. So not only do I pick each frame, but then when I look step back, again, macro, micro, when I look at something, I'm like, what, what trends can I see here? What color palettes, like you said, what size of the shot? Like Inherent Vice is one of my favorite movies. There's only like 692 shots in that. And 80% of them are close-ups, straight on, like center framed with nothing else. 
and I'm like, there's 700 shots and 500 of them are just close-ups of one person. You're like, that's not a feature film. That's some kind of interview, right? right. Like, no, it's because, because peppered in are the establishing shots and this and that. But you can see the trends in these Bashi frames. You can see the color palette that you're being exposed to. You're seeing the size of the shots. You can see pacing and rhythm. You can see how long a certain scene lasts because in comparison, there's, you know, X amount of shots. You're like, well, that seems to be an important scene. It's taking up, you know, 50 shots. Like, that's interesting. So you can, I just like to reverse engineer stuff and see how it works. And that gives me more clues and more information that I can use on my projects. It's interesting too, because I feel like if you were to ask the directors or the editors on those films why they work, they might not have the same answer that you come to from looking at that, you know, like just there, there's so much that as an audience member or a fan or what, you know, you can discover your own meaning and things, or you can pick up these patterns that maybe subconsciously they were choosing to do the director or the editor, but maybe not, you know, maybe it just, it was just an interesting coincidence, but you say, Whoa, when you, when you do a sequence, that's all, you know, center frame close-ups that really works in this instance, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, I did a video post a couple years ago about, um, Mad Max Fury Road called Center Framed. Yeah. And that film was edited by George Miller's wife. Her name is Margaret Sixel. And there were like 3,200 shots in the film. And every single one of them, the edict of the director was keep any action or anything in the middle of the frame. Hmm. Because then if we cut as fast as humanly possible, the eye never has to relocate and see oh. where's the important part of this image. It's just in the middle of the frame. So you could cut every half second, but you're watching the middle of the frame that the most important information is always right there. So you don't have to try to follow it. It's, it's just being zoned directly into your eyeballs and into your brain. So there's no effort on the viewer's part. If you put the point of action on different sides of the frame and then your eye is looking what's happening and you're cutting, you get completely confused. And that's a problem with so many action films where they think active editing or fast frenetic editing is going to make it, seem more visceral right but it actually the opposite is true you're so confused you have no idea what the shit is going on <laughs> and you're just like whatever just a lot yeah. of shots okay a lot of shots right so um and the, th- the other cool part of that of uh, fury road was george miller the director he asked his wife to edit it and she was like why do you want me to cut it i've never cut a uh, action film whatever and he said that well that's exactly the reason why i don't want to hire some guy that does action films i want mm. it to come from your viewpoint and that's one of the one of the films that has the most shots ever but i never find it hard to follow the action at all it's all right there it's just overwhelming in the best way possible but it was a conscious decision in terms of editing that positively affected a great outcome for the film it's brilliant to have thought of that during the production phase too so that you're framing every shot intentionally that way so that when it's cut together, yeah, it's not disorienting. That's interesting. Correct. And and George Miller actually, he created all the storyboards. So they storyboarded the whole film before they before they started, before they shot, with that intent, yeah. which is even in the storyboards. Cool. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you, Vash. I, I, I really enjoyed just chatting with you and getting to getting to geek out a little bit because, yeah, you're... Dude, my sincere pleasure. Of course, yeah. are you kidding All right, there it is, Vashi Nedomansky. It was a great talk. I really, really enjoyed talking to him. And hearing that again today now, it, uh, it lifts my spirits some. I, I, I feel slightly more optimistic 
just hearing the the joy in his voice about filmmaking, about life. Vashi, uh, he's great. Go follow him on social media. He really does a lot for the filmmaking community. So there will be a new show on Thursday. At least that's the plan right now. I look forward to talking to you again then. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Drop me a line. Let me know what you're thinking. How are you feeling about this crazy world? (sighs) I hope we get through it. Stay safe.